All right, welcome to another episode of Real Talk Real Life. I'm your host, Ryan Riggs. I'm very excited today because we got uh, Paul Kerr and Matt Carpenter here with us today. These two guys um, came to Real Life on January 7th. Uh, they are occupational therapy doctoral students at Virginia Commonwealth University. And uh, since they have came here, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been amazing having them. We're able to, you know, do some things that we weren't able to do before. But before we get into all that, I kind of want to introduce these guys um, and let them tell you a little bit about themselves. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm Paul. Um, so I started the OTD program at VCU in June 2016. Um, did my undergrad also here at VCU. Uh, love the city. Um, my two previous field works were in uh, acute psychiatry at VCU and then in uh, spinal cord injury at the VA hospital. And where are you from, Paul? I'm from Springfield, Virginia originally and moved down here New Year's Day 2005. Um, and I've sort of been in and out of Richmond since then. However, Richmond is definitely home to me and I, and I love being here. Well, we're glad to have you. And, and what about you, Matt? Yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, so. I, I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in sociology um, from William & Mary and kind of like the study of groups of people and then now as an occupational therapy student um, I focus a lot more on individuals and their, their problems and how that works. Um, but I grew up outside of Lynchburg in a small town called Forest, Virginia um, and I've been in Richmond uh, since the program started in 2016 and uh, enjoying it here. So. I guess uh, for for most people, well, I speak for me. I didn't know what occupational therapy was. I had no idea when you guys came here. Um, you know, I just I, I, so the general person listening to this is not going to know what occupational therapy is. Right. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about that. So, occupational therapy is typically one of the things that kind of comes into people's lives. They don't seek it out. Um, it usually happens due to an injury, illness, or disability. So occupational therapists work with people who have an injury, illness, or disability to facilitate their success and independence in daily life. Uh, and that can mean broad things across a setting, so across different settings. So when we say occupation, we don't necessarily mean vocation and job, however it may include that as well. What we mean is all the little things that make up your day in a day out life. Everything from getting in and out of the bathroom, to brushing your teeth, to, to getting dressed, to getting transportation, um, to eating and cooking a meal, a lot of things that people, frankly, just take for granted in their day in and day out life that for a typically developing individual would not be challenging. But for someone who has uh, a brain injury or, um, a mental health in, or a mental health issue, <clears throat> all those things become much more difficult in being independent and successful in. So I, I, when you go to school, I'm sure you didn't start <clears throat> off you know, at VCU and like, or, or William & Mary or whatever, what college was it? You I went to VCU for my undergrad. You went yeah. to VCU for undergrad too. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you didn't start off there going in and saying, hey, I want to be an occupational therapist. So what was it about occupational therapy that drew you guys to it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, for me, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, I had a degree in sociology and I had experience working with people in, in a variety of settings. Um, what I, what I really liked about occupational therapy was that it kind of combined the working with people aspect with the medical aspect without having to like be a doctor and do surgery and all, and all that stuff. And I, I know it's being a doctor is way different and there's a lot more to it than that. But um, I, I fell in love with the idea of helping people regain their independence and watching people um, help others 
reuse, like learn to reuse their hands to, to do the things that are meaningful to them. And so um, I thought that was a worthy pursuit of, of my time and, and wanted to make that happen. Sarah was telling me that, um, that before, by the way, Sarah Scarborough is our director, for those of y'all listening that don't know. Um, and she told me that you guys had been working on like a, um, a curriculum or some type of thing throughout your college or since you've been working at your, your, on your um, doctoral or your doctorate that, um, that y'all been putting together. Did y'all specifically design that for, for here? Or did you, or is it designed to be used anywhere or were you specifically designing it to work with people in uh, the, the demographics of the people that we work with, specifically substance use, homelessness, or was it, um, or is it more broad than that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so many of the issues, the mental health issues that uh, I'm addressing in the stress management groups apply to the, the overall population. Uh, in general, there's no one whose life is not subject to stress management, which is the uh, kind of the main uh, skill that, that I'm working with here. However, in the context of recovery, which is where the real life context, which is what the real life context is, I orient that around the specific challenges of recovery okay. and where people are at in their uh, re- really rebuilding their life, um, broadly speaking. So people's tolerance for certain activities or um, their ability to, to manage certain tasks is going to be graded in accordance with where they are in that, re- in that recovery process and what their baseline skills are. Uh, so if we were doing a similar group with you know, people who were, had a new injury, it was a physical injury, then we'd be talking about stressors that are, um, you know, secondary to that new musculoskeletal injury, say. However, in this context, I think we're talking about a lot of also relationships, um, places, you know, having to make broad life changes in accordance with, with, with your recovery in, on the whole. Um, so, we definitely f- firmly believe that we want to match our interventions for the population as much as possible. Um, everything should be as much as possible catered to the groups that we're serving because it's, it's the, we need to meet them where they're at with the problems that they're, <clears throat> that they're experiencing. Uh, so everything is tailored as much as possible to the patients or the clients that we see here on a daily basis and where they're at. So what what are some of the things that you have uh, walking into here that you haven't necessarily, maybe obstacles or something that you didn't necessarily think about upon, um, you know, when you kind of were in the planning stages of uh, of coming here? What are some of the things that when you got here, you, uh, after, after, after working with our clients or working in this space, realized, okay, uh, this is a little different. Cause I'm sure you have a working model, but then you get here and right. you're like, okay, yeah. Uh, so, what are some of the some of those obstacles or or or, or differences that you uh, weren't expecting? Yeah, I think one that sticks out to me is is the kind of the model of a closed group where you have a group of people that meets regularly, like week to week or you know every day of the week over a period of time that you can kind of build those relationships in, um, and that here it it happens, but it also doesn't doesn't happen because you have people in various places and stages of life. Um, so the groups are more of an open model and it's not restricted like these five people are going to be here every week. It's, it's anybody that walks in the door, which I think is a good thing because it allows 
um, one for you to, to serve as many people as you can serve and serve people who are who are ready and um, willing to make changes and or at least um, consider making changes in their life um, so I, I think figuring that dynamic out of you know we don't exactly know who's going to be here when we're doing stress or time management or, or teaching social skills um, and kind of being ready to adapt to the needs of the people that we meet when they show up yeah if I could add to that one thing that I've observed specific to um, the folks that I work with here at real life that I did not anticipate is that I see a very strong sense of urgency as people re-enter the community after leaving incarceration. And there's a very strong sense of urgency to get back to work, um, get these appointments, get these ducks in a row to establish healthcare and getting daily needs met. And I respect that sense of, that sense of urgency, especially when people have been incarcerated for a long time and they're just thinking about getting back to the life and doing things. But the challenge that I, that I observe in that is the pacing of recovery and the pacing of um, some of the administrative tangles in uh, re-entering the community. And I did not anticipate there being um, uh, just, just that, that sense of urgency that I don't want to uh, crush or take away, but I do want to respect the pacing of recovery in a person's life without them getting uh, frustrated by how slow things can, t- can be. You know, does that make sense? It does. I, I, I think I get exactly what you're saying. So it's, uh, you know, typically when, you know, I speak primarily to my experience. So primarily when I would get out of, out of incarceration, it would be, I got to get all this. Well, so it, it's, it's both physical and exterior as much as it is interior, right? So I'm getting out. I have extremely low self-esteem um, because I haven't been able to do anything. My life is at a place where... I can't even really uh, grasp how it got to this point, mm-hmm. and, and so, and, and most of the times, uh, you know, I'm, for me it was I was in my late twenties, then my early thirties, then my mid thirties, and so I'm watching all of my friends and all of my peers of of that age group mm-hmm. buy houses and progress in their life, and so I feel like I have to get all of these things, um, and so I think what happens is I, I'm looking at. I'm looking at the actual attaining of the actual attaining of the goal as opposed to the awareness that it's in the journey of developing skills necessary and and to, so the tools are something that the, the tools to maintain and to to obtain mm-hmm. these these goals that I have are are developed through the journey of learning coping skills and learning things like that and so uh, but just by default, especially people with substance use disorder like myself, we want what we want when we want it, and we, and that is right exactly yeah. now. In fact, yeah. it's actually yesterday. Okay. That, <laughs> so, so I think that sense of urgency, and and then what happens is, and I, and I know for me personally, I have actually gotten things that I was not even ready to receive, mm-hmm. and so and because I hadn't, I didn't have the skills necessary to maintain those things. You know, they didn't last very long. Yeah, and I, that, that speaks to, to one of the broader points, I think, about occupational therapy is setting the right challenge for a person at the right time and knowing that we want people to succeed and we want to challenge them. But if we put too big of a, a burden on their plate or too big a responsibility, too big of um, a, a challenge that they're going to have to rise to to accomplish, then 
it's it's going to be it, it can be a setback, um, and it can be demoralizing. It can be it can lower that self esteem or make people feel, um, you know, impatient or as if they're not making any progress. Uh, but that's, that's just one of the. I mean, I totally I totally hear what you're saying. I agree with that. That um, there's the strong sense of urgency, and there's a like you said, we want what we want now. Um, <clears throat> but the the growth and the pattern the pattern of change and the um, the pace of change. Just isn't isn't built that way. So, had on people that you've worked with in the past, so different uh, people that suffer from different disorders than the ones you 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 typically see uh-huh. more prominently here. Um, that sense of urgency is not as much there with that with those other groups. Well, go ahead. I I think based on my experience in um, like long term care for people with brain injuries or traumatic severe traumatic brain injuries and people with um, serious mental illness um i don't know if if it's as much urgency as it is insight into how the process works and and what they need to do to get where they want to be Um, because those desires are still there and that like the desire to to get a family to get a wife or a house or kids or you know be not having to go to rehab anymore Um, those desires are all there and they want them but i think the difference i see between here and there is that there's not as much um, insight at least. Yeah, I would say like with, with physical injuries, people can be made much more acutely aware of their limitations when they can't get through the door. That makes sense. And they can't I got it. pull their pants up. You know, they're, that is put right in front of them. So their sense of urgency is somewhat mediated by the equally urgent need for assistance from another person. Whereas somebody who has um, a serious mental illness, a chronic uh, mental illness, there is a longer term growth of the realization of what their needs are. And as Matt said, like sometimes their insight isn't, isn't quite as um, developed as someone with a physical disability who can see their limitations right away. So it's a, it's a longer term pattern. Um, but I also think that with, with mental health issues, which is kind of where... I come into the uh, substance abuse part of it um, is that people will lend them help for long periods of time or they won't ask and there's there's a longer space to realize what the degree of need is in their life. Yeah, 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 no doubt. And oftentimes, um, I think oftentimes in their mind, or in our mind, because I'll include me in that, we often, um, the way denial works is it'll tell us, like, we, we know, I know what I need to do, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. all the evidence to the contrary will point to the fact that I absolutely do not know what yeah. the hell I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> that's an insight component. Right. That is, that, that's a hard, you know, fact to swallow, too. That that's, that's, can be an, uh, an assault on somebody's pride or their autonomy, um, and that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to realize, you know. Maybe I maybe I really need more help than I think I do. Yeah, I, I think culturally, like, you independence is the goal. Like, you need to be self sufficient. You need to, um, and with social media, there's a lot of comparison of yourself to other people. So I think there's a lot of factors in in our culture at the moment that that don't lend to asking for help and that don't lend to um, accepting yeah. some of those absolutely, yeah, those things you got to accept to to make progress. Mm-hmm. So speaking on the speaking, of, that's kind of a side question. But speaking on the the the, so we're talking about 
you just mentioned the word independence. So how does, from an occupational therapy standpoint, how does how do you intertwine independence and um, what's the word? cooperation or or um, social? Um, so so how do you do you understand what I'm saying? I don't even know how to word this, but right. how do you how do you take somebody and teach them to be independent, but also teach them that they also need to to rely on. Um, you know, people close to them and, mm-hmm. and build sustaining relationships that will contribute to their independence? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. Like, what is the relationship between uh, independence and success against the reality of the need for uh, meaningful relationships and mentors and input from others? Right. So, you know, some of those independent things, um, it, you know, you know e- even being able to independently ask for help is a skill. You know, those things may maybe more merged than I even think of them in the sense that uh, does someone have to be cued or directed to uh, seeking for seeking help or can they advocate for the help on, on their own behalf? Um, you know, one of the questions I ask people oftentimes in evaluations is um, how are you at asking for what you need? You know, how, are, how, how, are, how well do you do it, you know, getting help when you need it? And that's that's a question that kind of combines independence with um, the cooperative element and the collaborative element of. Here at the Real Life Community Center, our mission is to assist individuals who have been impacted by incarceration, homelessness, who are battling addiction to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community to hinder their prosperity and their ability to have a thriving future. Our vision is to walk alongside our clients, to see them grow into prosperous and thriving life while highlighting the barriers associated with those exiting incarceration and overcoming addiction in order to reduce the negative stigmas and stereotypes. Every day, men and women looking for second chances and redemption walk through our doors. They are seeking hope, motivation, and skills in order to make that change. Through community partnerships and financial investments, Real Life is able to provide clients specifically with what they need. Intense case management and expected mothers program recovery housing or housing referrals, mental health services, classes and groups, job preparation and placement, transportation assistance, substance use disorder support, educational opportunities, a clothing closet, a computer lab, and more. And most important, unconditional love and support. All donations directly support providing services to further our mission of assisting individuals who have been impacted by incarceration or homelessness or those battling a substance use disorder to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community that hinder their prosperity and ability to have a thriving future. If you would like to donate to Real Life Community Center, you can donate on our webpage, www.reallifeprogram.org backslash donate, or you can donate directly through the anchor.fm app or listening platform. All right, so we're talking about independence and, you know, Paul has said, uh, you know, how good is someone at asking for help? And so I guess the question that 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 begs is, what if the person doesn't even know what they need? Or Paul said, when does, uh, how good is someone at asking for help when they need it? So, what what about if the person doesn't even are isn't even aware of a need for help or um or the need that, or what they think they need is in fact detrimental to them yeah I'm, I'm, that's a real 
a struggle and a real problem um, that you you encounter because like in the I think it's the twelve step groups the first step is like you can't solve a problem that you don't know you have right so um, I think from our perspective looking at looking at independence and participation as things that kind of coincide together um, because in like life is relational at least from my mindset and my my worldview life is relational and so if I'm trying to change on my own and trying to create all this um, change in myself it's not going to happen at least in my own experience successfully um, in isolation like because I'm interacting with people all the time like I need to rely on the other strengths um, of those people to learn from them and to um, keep me accountable and and that kind of stuff so um, our culture kind of talks about like there's a lot of comparison and like um, seeing other people doing great and being like oh man this is uh, stresses me out because you know he's doing so good at this and I I don't I don't have these things but I I want them so like I think Teddy Roosevelt says comparison is a thief of joy and with social media that kind of you know that's just comparison across the board so I think getting back to your question trying to help somebody that doesn't know how they have a problem it's just kind of to what extent we can surrounding them with people and having them participate um, in activities, you know, just to see what really growth looks like in other people's lives and to kind of foster some self-awareness just by asking people questions. Can I add to that real quick? Yeah, so so the other idea of, you know, if this person doesn't have the awareness to realize that they need assistance, um, which if I remember correctly is the, is the, anosognosia component um, that some of that could be for different reasons. Say they have, say someone has dementia, right. you know, or say someone has schizophrenia and it's very difficult for them to connect their reality with, with what everyone else is experiencing, um, <clears throat> which is kind of a different, a different ball game in terms of solving the problem. Uh, however, you know, in the context of recovery, I think it's more about, okay, you know, you, you thought you had a solution to that and it ran its course, and then it's kind of stepping back and saying in a problem-solving way, like, okay, how did that go for you? Like, you know, did your, did your decision play out the way you wanted it to? Did it, did, it, did it create the result that you wanted to? And in some ways waiting for that person to, I don't want to say run out of options, but be amenable and agreeable to cueing and suggestions in a way that is non-confrontational, that is honest, that is helpful, um, and that is encouraging. Because I, you know, I don't want to push someone away by saying, you know, Here, here's what you don't understand. Here's what you're doing. You know, <laughs> you know I, that, that's not going to help them trust me or believe that I care about them. So some of it, you know, in terms of them gaining that insight um, would be, as long as there's not a safety component or a legal component involved, say, okay, well, you know, give that a shot. You know, let, let that run its course and then come back and let's check on that. Say, did it, did it go the way you wanted to? And, um, you know, maybe making minor suggestions until that person is able to hear a broad scoping of a sweeping change in their plan or their routine. You know, I, I don't think that happens overnight. That's not like flipping a switch. There's a slow, it's like a, it's like a dimmer just coming up real slowly to say, okay, maybe it didn't go the way I wanted it to and therefore... I will I will take a cue or a suggestion or an option collaboratively from a, the therapist. Yeah. I, I think you can can draw a metaphor and liken it to like walking down the road with somebody and you know it's a dead end or you're you're fairly certain it's a dead end, but um, 
just walking with them along that and letting them make those decisions until they realize that hey, this isn't this isn't right. We got to turn around and go back. Yeah, well, I, I, so and I, I mean, listening to you guys is like anytime I talk to you guys, I'm always like. Like tucking stuff in my file to try to learn so that I can because honestly, man, like I do the best I can as any human does, but sometimes I can be abrasive in my approach to people due to more not so much here at work as it is with my my peers in recovery mm-hmm. um, out there, you know, um, in my recovery pathway um, because it's frustration because you know the proverbial dead end is actual death yeah so it's like when you're watching somebody walk down there it's almost like how do you not like don't like don't do that you know and so there's a there's a struggle there yeah you know um to deal with that stuff man but i think that the social aspect this is my my personal opinion is that the and why i why i asked the question was like how do we balance independence or intertwine independence with codependence isn't the word i'm looking for but um, with uh, high social interaction, um, because like we had just talked about a little bit ago, um, before this podcast, uh, or actually on the break, um, you know, uh, if if the disease of addiction is is is, is physical, mental, emotional, um, and social, then uh, as I'm healing, I got to heal all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so, and Matt, you know, pointed out that you know we're dealing with people every single day, and in fact the disease of addiction is isolated in nature. And so what happens is people isolate and develop these really strange human behaviors that like are, that, that become normal, but that are actually antisocial mm. in, in and of themselves. And so reintroducing someone back into tr- like part of helping somebody is re or part of the skill building um, that I see that the need for is reintroducing uh, someone into social interaction because that is essentially w- one of the things that that ignites something in people is hope, right? Hope is like the one of the, the main principles that can be gotten from somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's like seeing somebody else be successful. But the problem is, and I know I'm going way off here, and there's a lot I'm, I'm covering a lot, right? But the problem is, is that a lot of people, so 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 substances and the isolation and the dependence upon substances. Um, when that's gone, there's a high level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that dr- the drugs are like my security blanket. So when I'm high in anxiety, guess what I don't want to do? Interact socially. Mm-hmm. But the social interaction may in, in fact be a part of where my solution lies. And so like oh, yeah. trying to get somebody to understand or trying to help nudge somebody in that direction, um, you know, to 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 maintain. And that's why we do what we do here in real life. We bring people in. We have groups. We try to encourage as much pro-social skill building activities as possible mm-hmm. along with other individuals um, because it's necessary. Mm-hmm. But we struggle keeping people engaged because a lot of times as soon as somebody quits using drugs, they're like, I, I got this, I'm good. Yeah. But they don't realize all of those components. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of, of a group uh, that's planned and scheduled and that um, there's then a time and place so you mentioned the anxiety component, you know, especially in the context of recovery, when, you know, uh, a social anxiety disorder or a generalized anxiety disorder is very common, even outside of people who are, um, you know, in, in recovery. Uh, therefore, kind of having the, the scheduled uh, parameters of saying this, this is 
the time where we're in group um, does alleviate some of that anxiety, I think, in the sense that people know it's coming. They know when it's going to start. They know when it's going to stop. The, to- the topic is presented beforehand. Everyone's doing it together. Um, you know, the person who's facilitating that group isn't going to keep singling them out. Um, and there's, there's a, a grading of social participation within the group. You, you were talking about that earlier. You and I were talking about that earlier today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't remember. You, no, you were, saying, you were saying how, like, sometimes in, in groups, uh, such as in here, um, people participate to different degrees and in different ways. Yeah, some over-participate. Yeah, and some will over-participate. Some people will, will straight up monopolize. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and there's that subtle redirection, redirection, redirection. Right. Um, Which is also an antisocial behavior. Sometimes. Like, monopolizing the conversation. Yeah. Like, you can be so overly... Uh, you you can monopolize a situation to where it becomes antisocial because by nature people don't want to be. Oh, other people will shut down. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah, they'll shut down when somebody like really just monopolizes a group. Yeah. Um. But uh, it's it's a great. There's there's ways for people to grow into that participation level where you know maybe they're they don't even want to sit at the table. You know maybe maybe even participating in the group is more cognitively demanding for them at this moment than they're prepared to do. You know, uh, so what, how do you ta- so that this is great conversation, right? So like, how do you, how do you maneuver that? Like, how do you reel somebody in and get them to participate, or how do you, or do you not, or do you just allow them to be where they're at, or what strategies do you use in order to help get somebody to, um, because if they're not participating mm-hmm. and they're just listening or they're detaching yeah. then they're they're not really receiving the information or the help or are they i think one a big tool that that you have that anybody has is is developing rapport and developing trust with people um and it's tough in a group where you know you don't know who's coming and who's showing up but um one thing i think paul does really well in in his groups is he he checks in in the beginning he spends the first few minutes um having everybody kind of discuss where they're at where they're coming from and to the extent that they're open and, and um, willing to be vulnerable because I think you can you can encounter like a, a quotient of a vulnerability and, and like you're saying for some people it's you know this activity may be way above that and for some people um, you know the flip side is true that they're just kind of shutting down so that they don't have to um, participate and to, to avoid um, escape those type of situations so I, th- I think building r- rapport and, and spending that time not being kind of driven by the, the productivity, like we have to cover this topic right now in this 60 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever whatever time you have, and and um, investing that beginning into the individuals that are there, um, it builds a trust that allows people to kind of at least be more open and, and have a little bit more tolerance for vulnerability. Because it's a, being, being vulnerable and sharing and... Um, Admitting that you have a problem to other people is a tough thing to do, um, and it's it's um, maybe not a natural thing to do. Now, I would imagine too. What like so when you're when you're when you're facilitating a group at that in that arena, or, or and you use those those techniques, um, and also for for the individual that is monopolizing, you kind of reel them back in or put the um, restraints to some degree onto them. That it, it, the person that is isolated and then that is not participating or has shut down, but be, then begins to feel safe. And once they begin to feel safe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, a, in a situation, they're they're more likely to to participate. Yeah. So, so the other the other consideration is that if 
uh, I'm evaluating somebody, and I tell through I can tell throughout the evaluation that they are um, almost verbally intrusive. They're just loquacious to the point of just hyperverbal. They're talking a lot, talking a lot. I will tell them ahead of time. I put a disclaimer on it, like you know, I really think you'd be. Um, a good a, a good candidate to come to this group. I think it'd be beneficial for you. Yeah, hey, like before you do, do you, would, would it be uh, would you be okay with kind of like you know making sure that our people have some time to talk because you know and then when we come back and meet one on one, then you know you can we can really focus on that subject and setting the setting a standard beforehand. So we do the evaluation, do the evaluation, I- including saying to them. So in the groups, you know, we really want to give an equal opportunity for everybody to have a chance to share. So then the, the disclaimer and the preface is there before they even get to the group. And in so um, doing the evaluation, also hoping, as Matt said, to build that rapport so when it comes time to redirect them, they don't take it as a personal offense. And they take it as, you know, this is in the interest of the group, this is in the interest of, of their um, productivity as well. But there's also like subtle cues. You can look at like, does somebody, you know, you put a pencil on a piece and a piece of paper in some in front of somebody. Do they initiate to even reach for it? You know, do they? Do they? What is their What is their posture like when they sit at the table? Are they sitting up with their hands out on the table, or are they slouching and relaxed and you know pulling their hat down over their eyes? So we look at all the things like, do they volunteer in the conversation, or do they only respond when spoken to? Do they um, make eye contact with other people? Uh, what is their general affect and how does their affect match with their, their mood and kind of how they're presenting? Um, and then the, the cooperative piece of do they actually pick up the piece of paper? Do they actually pick up the, the marker and write something or not? And are the are there responses really short and brief or are they long and involved? So there, there's little cues that people can give to see what their participation is going to be like. Right. So, so, <clears throat> so with all of that being said... Um, and having that information, because I'm sure, you know, you went to school and learned these things in school and have been able to, a lot of that stuff you learn in all your training. Um, has has it been practical or, or practic- easily practically applied in this setting? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, you can look at it in a couple of different ways. Um, in some senses, like, you're in school for so long and, and there's so much to learn that... Um, you can't apply it all at once, or right. at least it's difficult if you if you think about like I have to you know I have to take this theory and this and all this stuff and and over time it gets it gets easier to kind of apply those things without thinking about them. Um, but for me, if I if the more I, time I spend like thinking about like every word I'm going to say, am, am I using this technique or this cue or whatever, right. I I get lost in that. So focusing on um, just kind of the little specific things I can do and kind of improve upon each group to group. Is more of the way I, I approach it. Okay, I, one one comment on on you know, because if I understand you're asking about like how to apply all of the content of school, or, well, or I, do, is it a match? Well, we were just talking. You were talking about like you know um, theoretically how to engage individuals in groups. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I was just curious if the things that you had learned in the in the theories that that you learned in your schooling. Um, have you been here long enough in, in facility or even before you came here and in, in other settings, group facilitations and things like that has, um, has all of that, all of that stuff been practical? I think that, um, there's a big difference between theoretical and experiential knowledge. And one of the components of experiential knowledge that I take the most from that is not necessarily exhibited in a formal academic setting is basically modeling and seeing how other people, manage those situations and taking just as much people who do manage it well that i mean 
um, observing other people fulfill that role as the OT or the facilitator in whatever capacity successfully and saying like that is something that I can duplicate. That is something that I can take from. I can I can mimic that skill in some way until I adapt it as my own. Um, so in some ways, the theoretical component is, is really valuable. In other ways, the practical component is equally, if not more, valuable. All right, so I, I'm gonna switch switch gears a little bit here, but okay. uh, I, I definitely want to talk about this 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 particular thing. So I think that you know having you guys here has been a huge huge blessing, man. You know I think that um, what you guys have been able to bring to the table is uh, is and they've given me a lot to think about from a professional standpoint, but also the services and the things that you provide from a diagnostic standpoint, like the ability that I have to be able to slide somebody into you guys and you guys to perform, you know, some written, um, you know, assessmental, is that even a word? Assessments or exercises. Right. Um, and then be able to, well, and, and so I'll let the, the audience know this. So, um, oftentimes individuals come in here and I give them, after doing their intake, I give them tasks and I pretty much treat everybody or historically treat everybody generally on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned from you guys after being here and sliding a couple of people in here is that like sometimes I've given people tasks to do that are not even equipped to handle the task and then I'm wondering why they're not being successful mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're just not at that at that point so i can't remember the name of that test but i kind of want to talk about um you know about how y'all how we do those assessments because i not only do i see it here but i've seen it across different places because this isn't the only place i've been at where um we kind of have this expectation um that people can uh, can accomplish said goal mm-hmm. um, without ever really looking at their their ability to even cognitively set and um, or, or where they set goal or or to uh, be able to achieve the task necessary to pursue that goal. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the OT process always begins with evaluation. You know, maybe it's a short screening, maybe it's an hour and a half. Um, I mean, you want to say a little about about the MOCA? Yeah. So we like. One of the things that um, VCU is, is really good at, at promoting within the academic part of our, our coursework is is client-centeredness and, and focusing all of our, our efforts and goals on, you know, the specific um, capacities of the individual and kind of looking and observing things that may, may give those away. Um, because like we said earlier, people don't always want to admit that they have problems with, with saying some things, and especially with cognitive um impairments or deficits or just people whose brains function differently than most people it's it can be um if you just know an individual on a superficial basis it can be hidden really well so um the the mocha is a short screening that that we do that kind of involves um just a, a lot of different tasks that that draw out different um functions different parts of the brain and whether it be your executive functions or your memory or that kind of stuff and and use that as a as a tool to kind of not diagnose somebody with um, with a certain disability or any of that because that's not in our scope of practice. But it gives us the opportunity to see, you know, does this person do they think the same way that most people do, or do they think in a different way? And how is that going to impact the way they organize their life, the way they schedule their life, the way they're able to remember the tasks that they're supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's crazy. I heard a segment on NPR the other day about a guy 
who was... Uh, I, th- I thought I was the only person that listened to NPR. Oh, I listen to NPR all the time. <laughs> and this guy, um, according to the story, if I remember correctly, was working for Best Buy. He was dating a young lady and had a little side hustle. It uh, wasn't exactly legal, but he was making it happen. And uh, he was dating this poor woman for three years before she found out that he couldn't, he couldn't read. He couldn't read. This is a guy in his mid-20s. And uh, like as Matt said, like people can kind of hide their deficits and camouflage them. But the reality is the more we know about a person, the boundaries of their skill sets and their performance skills, um, especially like in terms of their process skills um, and what they ha- and seeing like how well are they um, interpreting the information around them and how well do they perceive, um, you know, their, their reality for lack of a better word. But anyway, you know, he got away with that. The guy on the segment got away with it for three years. Nobody, he, girlfriend didn't know he couldn't read. The uh, employer didn't know he couldn't read. So if we come in and do uh, a formalized, you know, um, valid and reliable screening that's also shared across other disciplines, that's going to bring out some information that's really important for us to know. And we can therefore then grade the task and provide the right support based on that evaluation. But like I said, the OT process always begins with evaluation. Um, Therefore, we're not we're at least less likely to assume a degree of performance skill that person doesn't actually have. Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. And I think, I think that, you know, I've, I've been, I've been raving about you guys to everybody because as simple as that sounds. And it's like, it, it's just crazy that it, that is so simple and so matter and it's so uh, right on spot on. But like the places I've been, um, that is typically not how things work. Maybe in the medical field, or in the psych- psychiatric field, you know, you would sit down with somebody and do an assessment. But let's just be honest, like the majority of substance use, um, you know, history of incarceration work with mm-hmm. people is happening at a grassroots, oh, yeah. uh, nonprofit, community-based effort mm-hmm. where that doesn't necessarily have people that are trained to do that type of stuff. And so... Um, you know, people oftentimes, you know, show up and they 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 are treated, um, you know, treated well, but also um, not necessarily properly diagnosed in regards to what we're, what we're talking about, the yeah. ability to carry out tasks. Yeah. Which I think is hugely important because if if we're giving individuals tasks to do, typically, um, you know, what comes along with the inability to complete tasks um, can sometimes be frustration on the side of of the provider, right? And and then for, for not only frustration on the side of the provider, but also even, and more importantly, frustration on the on the side of the individual. Well, why right. can't you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, people um, and you mentioned it earlier. People want to um, they've failed so many times that achievement is 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 high on their scale of needs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, um, at least you know once you're tackling the other needs or or the need for recognition of accomplishment. Absolutely. And so when when they continue to to not be able to complete the task, really because they just aren't, they don't have the necessary tools. Right. You know, then it just damages more, which causes stress. Right. And stress is in fact the number one reason that people relapse. Yeah, and I I wouldn't want those uh, shortcomings in you know process skills, performance skills, the cognitive skills that make up daily tasks that you know a lot of people take for granted, I wouldn't want those, the lack of those and the lack of productivity to then be viewed as merely a behavioral issue. 
Like, oh, he's just got an attitude problem. Right. Or, oh, he just doesn't care. Or he's just not showing up. Well, you know, maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But if I have the appropriate, you know, a, a good evaluation and learn as much as I can about this person, then therefore I'm going to be able to understand um, what the deficits are or the barriers that are um, decreasing the likelihood of success in their life. <clears throat> when you have people that are able to hide their deficits... I think for any, it shows that they're adaptive. Like they've they've figured out how to how to function, so that people don't know. You know they have these problems. So, the more we learn about them and the more we understand, um, you know what's going on holistically, it allows us to kind of help fine tune that adaptation and those skills um, to um, kind of increase their productivity and their their capabilities and whatever tasks they need to do, whatever meaningful participation is for them. All right, so maybe you guys should do like um, you know. And I'm sure this may already exist, so I'm not trying to, you know, um, say that I'm creating something that doesn't exist. But to me, it would make sense to create, like, the test that you guys give. Not only do the assessment, but create a, and I know each person is, is, is individual, right? But create a general assessment and also, like, a scale upon how to um, how to deliver or how to... Uh, to to task individuals with certain things, how mm. that could be used across across the board, um, and maybe even um, you know, and not just by doctors or not just by, but by the general um, a general person that could just do a a you know a case manager or a or just a general social worker that could that could do a quick uh, yeah. assessment that that is not comprehensive but not mm. also. Yeah, um, see, what, what I also hear in that question is that based on screening and assessment results, it, the, the provider can deduce a certain series of recommendations. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, might, it might not be as straightforward as a scale because there's a lot that assessments may not catch. Right. Um, but what I hear you saying is like the, the value of a series of recommendations based on a person's overall presentation and performance in those assessments that will then guide them into, you know, the, the uh, appropriate supports for succeeding, you know, like if, for example, you know, if, if someone was asked to do a basic task here, like, you know, um, a lot of the gentlemen that live in the, in the real house and are in recovery are here during the day and they take up, you know, cleaning responsibilities. Sometimes they work at the front desk. They um, help set up clothing outside for giveaways maybe some of those individuals, no, I'm not saying right now, or I mean, I'm speaking hypothetically, somebody who's carrying out those tasks may need even like one-to-one supervision. Or here, here's one step in this response, in this task, do the first one, then let's check and see how it went. And which is a lot to ask of a nonprofit staff who's really busy. You know what I mean? No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. You got anything to add, Matt? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> So look, look, I could literally sit here like all day, and we could do this because sure. I love talking with you guys. We yeah. always have good conversations, um, but we're gonna take a break for right now, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll follow up uh, later on, and maybe right. in the meantime, kind of think about some some ideas and things we want to present. But I, I appreciate y'all, um, you know, sitting down with me for the day, and uh, absolutely, I can't yeah, wait. I can't us. wait for the next time. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, man. Appreciate it.
Don't miss the McShinn Foundation's second annual A Night for Scott this Saturday at the Salisbury Country Club. Hi, I'm Jill Chickowitz, Scott's twin sister. Two years ago, my brother tragically lost his life to an accidental overdose. But through the Scott Zabrowski Scholarship Fund, his big heart lives on. Join me this Saturday for a delicious dinner, live entertainment, a silent and live auction, and incredible guest speakers at A Night for Scott. Get your tickets today at eventbrite.com and search A Night for Scott. Together, we can end the stigma and fight for tomorrow.